Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 313 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 47 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man that needs to find his happy place and just stay there a while, Chris Roche. Hey, Chris. Hello, Robin. This is the 2022 Formula One preview episode. This is... No, 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 no. We're covering the uh, newly inaugural WWE racing series. No holds bar racing that's just kind of made up cosplay. It's it's great. Okay, that'll be fun. It is Wednesday afternoon, December 15th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and the um, results that incurred during that and I have an interview with sports car racing legend, Hurley Haywood, which will be a nice just change of pace to just have something just a little bit more uh, fulfilling and positive to end the podcast with. But first, Chris, I'm sure not much from the race itself is on your mind. Do you have any Formula One news you want to talk about? <laughs> Michael Massey's in hiding, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah okay so clearly this podcast is not going to cover all the things that happened you know championships were decided up and down the line a lot of interesting things we were probably going to miss a couple of those because there's one thing to talk about that's on our minds more than anything and we have to let some of this out so the championship was decided max verstappen is the 2021 driver's world champion that happened after a lot of just bizarre circumstances one after another being more bizarre than the one before it chris go ahead take it away well look i think first of all you know congratulations to max he has driven uh, brilliantly all year i think he is a deserving f1 champion there's no doubt about that uh you know he, he was brilliant prior to this season as well He's supremely talented. He delivered some great races. You know, he never gave up in the race, even when it looked fairly bleak for him. The first ever Dutch uh, world champion in F1, which is an incredible achievement. It's been obviously a long journey for him and his dad, uh, Jos Verstappen, who didn't have quite such an illustrious uh, F1 career. So, you know, amazing, amazing for, for him. It's great for the Red Bull team. Their first title since 2013. I know... You know, they've, they've been working tremendously hard to try and bring a championship back to Milton Keynes. And then, of course, Honda's first uh, championship since 1991. So, you know, there's a lot to be positive um, about that. And, you know, it's it, I think when when the pain and suffering that I'm feeling, you know, dissipates, uh, that would be great to reflect on it. But I think the manner in which they, they won the race and the circumstances around it leave a very sour taste, which, you know, hopefully doesn't overshadow it for them. I, I don't think this title for Max will be viewed in the same light as Schumacher's 94 title because, you know, Max did nothing wrong. He just took advantage of the situation as it played out. It was a tough race to watch, though. It was it was a, it was a painful one for me. Well, I think that is something we should address early on and... I first of all want to share my congratulations to Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing and Honda as well. As you said, Max Verstappen is obviously impressively talented and has just proven to be one of the rare 
just gifted drivers out there. But I think no matter what the result of this race and this championship was going to be, what we were going to see was more sharp pain from one side or the other about the championship. It, to a certain extent, and I don't know if you'll necessarily agree with this, but to a certain extent, no matter who won the championship, it was going to have some subtle taint to it because everyone will point to some circumstance that happened over the season that they felt was unjust and because there's more passion around your being a on one camp or the other, that makes it sting a little bit and makes it feel make the pain a bit sharper. That said, this race was uniquely bizarre in the way different controversies played out, the way the race was called. One thing after another, this was in many ways unprecedented. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a lot of trepidation going into the weekend that we would have an on-track collision between Max and Lewis that would decide the championship. And nobody nobody wanted that to happen. We talked about that in the last pod. Um, and, it, and it didn't happen. What happened was the FIA's management of the safety car period that basically handed the championship to, to Max. And, you know... It, I've read a few headlines saying about, you know, what a thrilling end it was and great last lap racing. I mean, that's total BS. Absolute BS. You can't can't have one guy on 44 lap old hard tyres versus a guy on a couple of lap old soft tyres and expect that to be a fair contest. I mean, that's just absolute nonsense. If you think that way, then you've obviously never watched an F1 race before. And, um, you know, nobody wanted a manufactured championship. You know, we've had too good a season for it to end in such sort of ridiculous circumstances. And that's that's really what hurts. I mean, I think, you know, clearly good old Latifi, you know, with everything at stake, put it in the wall, trying so hard to, oh, hang on, there was nothing at stake for Latifi. Anyway, he put it in the wall, brings out the safety <laughs> but, car. But he was, he was racing McSchumacher hard. He kind of got pushed off track a couple of bit, picked up some dirt on his tire. And that's, uh, he lost grip. I yeah, mean, whatever. I do want to make sure that we're fair to Latifi. <laughs> fair to Latifi, okay. Well, oh. uh, you talked about, you talked He's about Max Verstappen did list. nothing wrong. Nick Latifi, he, he didn't do anything wrong. He, I mean, other than wreck his car, but there was, you know, he was just racing is all he was doing. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, look. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go on. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you obviously have to bring a safety car out. So let's just talk about the, the, the big incident, right? You have to... Okay, we, we do have to rewind the clock afterwards, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's there a few things There were circumstances that were about. bizarre leading up to it as well. Yeah, totally agree. But let's just, let's just hit this one on the head straight off the bat. Um, look, so it's not a VSC situation. It's either a full-blown safety car or you could argue a red flag. Right. What Massey did was he called a safety car correctly. So he said that his priority was to get the track cleared and to get racing. Now, I, I, you know, I think we all get behind the fact that nobody wanted to see the race finish under a safety car period. Right. We can all understand that, that that's a priority for him. But here's the thing. I reckon there were three better options at, at Massey's disposal than what he elected to do. And just to sum, para, you know, summarize what I think he did was made up the rules as he went along to try and get Max and Lewis together on track for a one-lap finale. 
and and he, he he rode roughshod over over the FIA's own regulations about safety car and restart procedures. You know, he had a choice. He could either decide not to allow any lap cars to pass the leader, in which case he would have followed the regulations fully and would have uh, been able to resume the racing with one lap to go, having not contravened anything, and therefore there would be no controversy. He elected not to do that. He could have uh, elected to allow all lap cars to pass. Of course, that would have endangered us having a green flag uh, last lap. But that would have, again, been the right thing to do because it would have allowed the, the cars that needed to unlap themselves to unlap themselves fully, all of them, not just four of them. And, um, and therefore, there would be no controversy because he would have followed the regulations. Or he could have thrown a red flag. And that way, he gets to clean up the track he gets to restart the race, and we could have had a two or three lap finale where everyone gets to change tyres, and um, and we actually have a, a fairer, um, you know, grandstand finish. To me, all of the three scenarios there are perfectly plausible. In each case, you know, Max still benefits ma- massively because let's not kid ourselves. Max had lost the championship and the race with five laps to go. He was eleven seconds behind. He wasn't going to catch Lewis. He needed a miracle to happen. With the safety car coming out, that eliminated Lewis's on-track advantage in both of time and lap, lapped runners. So Max had already been given all his Christmases at once. But by then, you know, making up the rules as Massey did, it, it then compounded Max's advantage to put him, you know, with no, no runners between him and Lewis, with one lap and, uh, and brand new tyres. And, and obviously that was never going to be a, a, a fair fight. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. There were definitely better scenarios uh, and definitely better options of how this could be done in what would seem to be a more fair basis. I don't even think what you said was the most bizarre or messed up part to this. I think worst of all of that situation was that originally it was going to be a race restart without the lapped cars being let through. And then that changed several seconds later while still under yellow. So the call was made to get the race going under green as quickly as possible and not let the lap cars through. That call was changed moments later, and then only some of the lap cars were let through just to put Lewis and Max together. That was, I think, just the most absurd and frustrating part about this. If you're going to do it one way, do it one way. If you're going to do it the other way, do it the other way. But don't at the last minute change to this weird, bizarre, unprecedented way of handling it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if Lou, if Max had had to pass four lapped cars with one lap of racing, you know, there was a chance that you know he may well have sides passed them and caught Lewis on the lap. But it, at least it seems like it would have been a slightly fairer scenario. And you know, there was lobbying from Horner. To, to get the lap cars out of the way. And, and the reality is, you know, what's so egregious about what happened is if you think about what that meant to the cars that weren't allowed to unlap themselves. So, so Norris, who was fighting with Carlos Sainz and, and Charles Leclerc for fifth in the, in the uh, Drivers' Championship, is now effectively a lap down. And, and so he can't now fight with Botas, Gasly, or Sonoda or, or Sainz anymore. He's basically now definitely finishing seventh. So, you know, it was not just unfair to 
to Lewis in this scenario or super fair to Max. It was unfair on other drivers in the field, which are why the Fernando Alonso. Yeah, exactly. Alonso was another example of that. That's right. So that's why the rules are are written in, in quite a very specific way. And the race director has the choice to either unla- uh, allow uh, lap cars to unlap themselves, or but all of them, or none. He has that that choice, one or the other. Not, you know, pick a few of your favourites and let them go. And then, of course, you know, there was the whole uh, requirement to allow the safety car to do an, an entire another lap after the the lap cars have unlapped themselves, which was also foregone. So, you know, there's certainly a case to be answered for. I have no expectation that the result will be overturned. I think Max is is the world champion. That will stay for time immemorial. But but ultimately, you know, I think it's worth Mercedes making quite a fuss about this because they have to figure out a better way for this type of scenario in the future. I, I cannot accept watching another world championship be decided in the same, you know, half-assed manner, quite frankly. Yeah, it was goofy. There's no other way to put it. It was just... Uh, absolutely goofy you can make an argument that the rules should be different or better or whatever for the sake of the show blah 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 but you can't change it on the fly that's the whole point of a rule book regulations etc and it takes away from the honor of the system so uh, it's incredibly frustrating and just as you said this last minute half-hearted approach to give it some like sense of parody even though it clearly wasn't is bizarre now there are some other mitigating circumstances to talk about uh and i do actually have a theory on why it ended up being this way and i'm very curious to hear your reaction to this let me preface this by saying i don't think this is right i don't think this is correct but i do think this played a role early on in the race first lap or two in max made a last minute dive attempt pass onto lewis hamilton very late to the apex kind of a pass and as a result he got the pass done he stayed on track but in the same time kind of forced lewis off track now you could argue whether lewis should have backed off or not and stayed on track himself blah 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 but what ended up happening was lewis went off track to avoid a collision, kept going, which ended up being a bit of a shortcut, and gained a bit of an advantage. As a result, Lewis was just in front of Max Verstappen, but after that incident, he was a good second-plus in front of Verstappen. Now, Mercedes argued, and ultimately the stewards agreed, that they conceded back enough of an advantage gained that all was fair. But... It certainly didn't seem fair, and there were some gray areas there because Max did make the pass, effectively made the pass. Max did stay on track. Lewis did not. Lewis stayed ahead. I think that Massey felt that that wasn't correct, and because Mercedes kind of sort of gained an advantage from the way the stewards reacted to that incident, he felt that Red Bull was kind of owed something of an advantage in the race what do you think about that well certainly i agree i wasn't very comfortable with the decision 
that the stewards arrived at that no investigation was necessary. I felt that the, you know, given Max was on the softs and, and Lewis was on the mediums on the first lap, you know, Max, I thought, did a legitimate move down the inside and had won the corner. And I think, you know, especially given the antics in Saudi Arabia, what would have been the right thing to do would be to ask Lewis to give the place to Max. That's what I think should have happened. And, you know, ultimately that's not what happened. And Lewis was able to, to continue to lead the race. Um, so, you know, that whole stewarding of these types of passes is now a complete mess. It's an unmitigated disaster. They need to go away and they need to review all the incidents this year and they need to come out with a clear set of guidance and guidelines for both the drivers and the stewards going forward for next season. That's but, more uh, consistent. Yeah. It just I, I mean, desperately needed to be more consistent. So there's no doubt that Max was a little hard done by. But, you know, frankly, given the pace disparity between Lewis and Max on every tyre compound, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to help him. You know, sooner or later, Lewis would have got by him either during, you know, that first stint or during the, the pit stops because Lewis and the Mercedes just had a massive race pace advantage. Max was great uh, over one lap on Saturday. You know, he did a blinding qualifying lap. Clearly, the Red Bull was set up more for quality than the race. But well, Lewis is... And they also, that was a, a mega team effort as well. It was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, to me... If you're, let's, let's go back to your hypothesis. Look, even if Massey felt that somehow that, uh, an incorrect decision had been made there, you know, you're not, you're not evening it up by what he then proceeded to do in the, during the safety car period. I mean, that's like giving six of one and 120 to the other, right? That's not an even, evening up of the situation. That's a complete landslide in the other direction. Not even close. Yeah, totally agree with you. So I, I would really hope that, that that isn't what's going on. I think I think he was genuinely motivated by trying to clean the track up and get the race restarted and, and made a real pig's ear of it, honestly. Under pressure, you know, uh, in the heat of the moment, he, he buckled, quite frankly, and didn't follow uh, the FIA's own regulations. That's really what happened, I think. And, you know, ultimately, the sport is in danger of being overregulated, and something something needs to change because, look, you know, clearly the Red Bull team and the Verstappen fans were all delighted at the outcome of Sunday. But imagine you're on the other side of it, because the way F1 is going, you know, next season we could have role reversal and they will feel, you know, just as gutted as as the Mercedes and the Hamilton, uh, as Lewis and, and his fans feel right now. I mean, it's just not a satisfactory way to end a season. It's just not acceptable. You know, ultimately, it, Formula One is about the best driver and team winning. It's supposed to be pure in that respect. It's about a performance-related um, victory. And what we saw was an artificial result. And so, you know, if you benefit from it, you can bet your bottom dollar that you'll, you'll also, at some point, be harmed by that same uh, approach and and so it's not good for anybody in the sport and and you know to see you know Horner basically throw in the towel with what 10 laps to go and then be on the radio asking for for extra advantages essentially for his driver and then celebrating so wildly I mean surely 
once he's calmed down and got over the joy of the victory, he must understand that that's not what happened is not good for the sport. It cannot be good in the long term for the sport. I want to talk a little bit more about good for the sport just a little bit later on, but just for a few moments longer, let's stay focused on the race itself. We had this bizarre circumstances where twice under different yellow flag, virtual safety car, et cetera, conditions that Max Verstappen was able to get a set of tire changes, relatively low risk tire set change. And Lewis Hamilton was not because the team said he was at risk of uh, losing track position. How much do you believe that was, did Mercedes flub this by not being more decisive about getting Lewis on fresher tires? No, I don't really think there's anything I would, I would do differently if you could do that race again. I think Mercedes made the right calls. Uh, I mean, look, Red Bull threw everything at it, including the kitchen sink, and, and they were creative and they used their whole team. You know, Perez's defending of Lewis uh, midway through the race to allow Max to close up about eight seconds was, was extraordinary. You know, brilliant team effort by Red Bull. Um, and, and what did Lewis do? He, he calmly got past Perez, pulled away again. You know, I mean, that's the frustration for me is Lewis was scintillating in the Grand Prix and did everything absolutely spot on and drove flawlessly and thoroughly deserved to win the race. You know, he kept building his lead back up. And when, when he was being chased by Max and having to pass uh, back markers and, and, you know, again, was losing time, you know, he still kept the pace up and, and basically nullified Max's charge and stabilised it around 11 seconds before the safety car came out. You know, again, fantastic driving under pressure. But you have to credit, you know, both drivers and both teams. They're doing, they're doing everything right, you know, to try and maximise, you know, the result on the day. Now, look, under the VSC, Lewis wasn't far enough ahead to pit. So he never pulled out a big enough gap on Max to get a free pit stop. Right. So, you know, it was obvious that Lewis was going to stay out under the VSC and keep track position. Max obviously then takes the tires, gets a cheaper pit stop. That that both teams strategies there make sense. Now, under the safety car period, you could argue again, why didn't Lewis pit? Because his tires were at this point, you know, really secondhand. Well, again, what would we be talking about now if Lewis had decided to pit for new tires? Max would obviously stay out in that scenario, would have taken the lead. In this situation, we might have never had, we may never have had another racing lap. Massey may have decided at that point to allow all the lap cars to unlap themselves. And we might have finished under a safety car period, in which case Lewis and Mercedes would have thrown away the championship by taking the the pit stop. So they did the right thing, uh, not knowing how things were going to play out with with the safety car to keep track position, to keep the lead. And then even if we had got a racing lap, you know, the tire disparity was never going to be the same. Um, as what transpired. So Lewis would have had brand new softs, but Max's tyres were only, what, 15 laps old at that stage? So he still had decent decent rubber. And so, you know, who would bet against passing Max over a one lap when you, your tyre uh, tires are in you know, relatively similar condition? I, I, You know, OK, Lewis would have had a tyre advantage, but it wouldn't have been as big as Max actually ended up having. So I think Mercedes made the right decision, honestly. I think they just... They just got really unlucky. If the, if the if Latifi had hit the wall a lap later, or if Massey had actually followed the rules, they would have won the championship. You said earlier that uh, you think neither of the drivers did anything wrong. They both drove mega and all this kind of stuff. 
there is a growing frustration for me that that's not the case, that Max Verstappen, his talent is unquestioned. And let me, again, preface my uh, comment by saying there's no doubt that he is superbly, supremely quick. But his aggressiveness, his late dive maneuvers, his aggression with defending and his aggression with overtaking, it's a you-either-get-out-of-the-way-or-we-crash approach to racing. That really frustrates me. And again, that dive into the turn where Lewis ended up going off track and that original debate about whether Lewis gave up enough of an advantage or not, that was a very late opportunistic move from Max Verstappen to try to get that position. And it's been a season-long venture of that, of him defending extremely aggressively or making overtaking attempts that are extremely aggressive. In my opinion, it isn't fair racing. It's you either concede or we crash racing, which is really unsettling to me. So in that sense, I don't think the two drivers are in parity there. They're just as blameless. One is just as blameless as the other. And I think Lewis has kind of adapted to become a little bit more aggressive in his defense with Verstappen as a result of learning how Verstappen would operate. But that is not, in my opinion, an example of two great drivers competing. When we saw Alonso defending Lewis Hamilton, that was brilliant racing. Some of the attempts we see on Verstappen's side is just overly aggressive. It's beyond what I consider great racing. Yeah, I, I think... So, look, Max did make one significant mistake during the course of the weekend. He flat-spotted his medium-compound tyres during Q2, which forced him to start the race on the soft tyres because he had to go back out on softs in, in Q2. And that, that proved to be quite instrumental in undermining his efforts on Sunday as the you know the tyres really didn't offer much pace and, and went off pretty quickly in the Grand Prix and gave Hamilton a fairly early advantage. But I don't, again... You're fighting for a championship. Um, I I don't have... At the time, I didn't have a problem with with Max's attempt down the inside. I I kind of would expect most racing drivers who are fighting for a championship, who who know they need track position, to make that type of of move. And I think you could argue that, again, he didn't didn't allow racing room uh, through the corner. You know, he basically used up the whole track width to keep it on, on the road. But isn't that the case sometimes during hard racing I, this is where it goes back to my earlier point you know i think the rules of engagement need to be more clearly defined for the drivers and the stewards and there needs to be a consistent policy of enforcing those rules going forward and we now have an unmitigated mess on our hands with with interpretation by different stewards and drivers but I, I, of all the moves that max made this season and some of them were were quite controversial i had less of an issue with that one. And I felt he was a little bit hard done by. Yeah, well, I, I understand the sentiment of being hard done by, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this much. At turn in for the corner, Lewis Hamilton was well ahead. Well ahead. And I guess there needs to be a better understanding of at what point does someone have the corner if at turn in you're already starting, you've already committed to an arc to get through a corner and then you get dive bombs super late and that alters your arc significantly 
is that fair racing or is that a bit much? And once, just as you say, it just needs to be more clearly defined. What frustrated me wasn't that he made the move and he stayed on track and all those things. What frustrated me is how far back he was and how late he made the attempt. And uh, that's, I, I, I just think that more time to set that corner up more properly would have been better for everybody. That I guess maybe I'm being too idealistic about it, but that's my point of view. It will be very interesting to see how Max's racing style evolves because, you know, up until this season, he was never fighting for the championship, right? And, and so he had nothing to lose, so he would throw the car in and uh, on the premise that, you know, he, he had more to gain than he had to lose by risking a, a crash. This season, he's basically followed the same template, but with the advantage that he's largely had a lead in the championship. And so therefore, again, he could afford to crash with Lewis, knowing that actually Lewis loses more than he does in that scenario. Um, and if we find ourselves in future championships where Max is, you know, in contention, but behind in the championship, he'll have to rethink his strategy. And it will be, it will be interesting to see how other drivers uh, behave with, with his lunges and his robust defences and whether he'll have, you know, he could have a, a spate of, of contact and DNFs if he's not careful. Because I think, I think the, the F1 racing community needs to make a decision collectively. Are they going to tolerate his sort of bully boy tactics or are they going to stand up to it? And if they do, then there's going to be a lot of collisions and a lot of DNFs and you're not going to win many championships that way. Yeah. And it gets to, do you want to be considered the greatest racing in the world or not? Because there were a bunch of people that tuned into this. I know anecdotally, I know of several new Americans, new to the sport Americans that were giving Formula One a chance. And they came away with it unimpressed, frankly, because we already have the WWE and we already have the Real Housewives of Pick a Place. We don't need any more manufactured drama. And we just want good racing. For the new Americans and new anyone that watched this for the first time to give it a try, that wasn't an example of the greatest racing drivers performing great racing. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, in terms of F1's reputation and F1's credibility, all this work that's been done with the... uh, with the Netflix series, with uh, all the social media input that they've been doing, all that kind of stuff, a lot of that gets thrown out the door when episodes like this happen. It's just, that's the most disappointing thing. As a long-time, long-term fan of open-wheel racing and a motorsport, to see a lot of new fans get exposed to it and say, meh, as a result, that's really frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think this has helped you know it was a it was by and large an amazing season for f1 but it ended for me on a bum note because you've you've shot yourself in the foot with trying to manufacture a grandstand finish we need we needed a safety car but the way you then executed that safety car created a scenario that was utterly absurd and, and violated all your own regulations that's not that's not right and and people will see through that um, and it and it sort of, as you said, it undermines all that was good and all that you know people liked about the sport, and 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 it's it's a shame. It's it's a real shame. I, I will say, you know, it, it can't. Uh, 
you have to go back and, and give Max credit for some wonderful drives earlier in the year that weren't controversial. And and so you have to keep that in, in, your, in your mind. But what I will also say is that, of course, Lewis missed out on the opportunity opportunity to be an eight-time world champion but I think his drive this season and particularly in the last four races uh, given that you know by and large the Mercedes was inferior to the Red Bull at times during the season and given his demeanor after the race with that huge disappointment you know and the classiness that he demonstrated I think this will have cemented his place in the sport as one of the all-time greats you know he he, he took on you know a young precocious driver he, he met his level he drove some spellbinding races, got, you know, some amazing victories and almost, you know, pinched the championship. I mean, just extraordinary. Probably one of his best seasons ever, even though he didn't win the title. So I think if, you know, all the people who've been naysayers about Hamilton, he's only winning because he's in the best car. I know, yeah, that's true. For a few of the seasons, that was the case. No, no, one, no one stood a chance against him in the, in, in the dominant Mercedes. But this year he showed what a what a truly amazing and great driver he is i think all i can do at this point is look forward to hopefully having another great season next year where hopefully the cars are even more even and um, we'll see again his qualities shine through yeah i i agree with you and i i i agree with everything you said about max as well he is a truly exceptional driver and another thing worth knowing He's also extremely young, <laughs> so we're, we're also dealing with two different drivers at two different stages of maturity, and Max Verstappen still has a lot of years to develop and mature. If you look at Lewis Hamilton's first season in 2007, he is not the same model citizen, knighted citizen <laughs> that he is today. Obviously, he's grown by huge amounts since his debut in the sport and Verstappen is still extremely young and I think he was born in 97 so he's not yet 25 and uh, he's done all these things so for him to have accomplished what he's accomplished at his age it's all incredibly impressive and it's really a shame that Verstappen has this controversy tied to his championship because he is such a great driver and it does show. And because who he was racing against is considered by many to be one of the greatest of all time, Lewis Hamilton. And that's who he was up against this entire season. It's just so frustrating that it was concluded in this manner. And that's kind of driven this entire conversation. So it's really hard to absorb everything that's happened because so much has happened. And because it was building up to this incredible crescendo. It was just so frustrating the way it actually concluded. But that doesn't take away from the talent of either driver. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just what, it, what it's done is it's put a really sour ending and completely tainted this season for me anyway. I mean, it's going to be hard to look back on this season without the farce of those, those final couple of laps. It, it's a shame. It's a shame it's ended on this note. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the way of motorsport sometimes, I guess. And you're absolutely right. The way Lewis composed himself, handed himself, made the point to congratulate Max, had the kind words he said. It was all very impressive, despite 
the emotions he was feeling. I had half a mind for Lewis to get on the phone with uh, Masa and be like, oh man, all right, I know how this feels now. Obviously, we're not talking about apples and apples here entirely, but it is the same kind of like, wow, it you really look like the championship was yours until the last moments. And uh, to see it just go to somebody else all in those last moments, I it reminded me a bit of 2008. Uh, in terms of those like emotional highs and drops in in that sense so but uh yeah a crazy championship crazy end of the season and uh, yeah it's going to be hard to at, at the very least not have a couple of footnotes <laughs> attached some asterisks attached to this uh 2021 season um to have to ponder uh but uh let's Move on to a couple other topics. Uh, real quick, Carlos Sainz, brilliant, brilliant season end for him. He ended up finishing on the podium. He ended up uh, taking P5 in the Drivers' Championship. He is, of all the drivers that are either rookies or did significant team switches, Carlos Sainz was definitely the winner of that particular category because he drove brilliantly and took to Ferrari in an incredible way. Yeah, he had a strong, strong Sunday. There's no doubt about that. It looked like Norris was going to take the the battle uh, for P5 down to the wire, but uh, managed to pick up some sort of mystery puncture and was the only, I think, car to do so uh, during the Grand Prix, which which unfortunately uh, ended his his bid. But uh, but yeah, I mean, Carlos to to score more points in his, in his first season at Ferrari. Uh, and more than Charles Leclerc, who is very, very highly rated by most people, is is no mean feat at all. And sh- and you know reminds us that he you know he shouldn't be discounted really. That he you know if Ferrari are able to pull off a competitive car again, um, he might be in real contention for a championship someday. So uh, yeah, strong strong old season by him. Absolutely, and of course we saw Kimi Raikkonen putter out of the final race early to end his 349th Grand Prix start. I believe I have that correct. I hope so. It's a lot anyway. And he was as Kimi Raikkonen as you can ever be about it. He's like, yeah, it is what it is. And now it's done. And I'm looking forward to new things and goodbye. But uh, Kimi Raikkonen, you know, he definitely... He was consistently Kimi throughout his entire 20 years in motorsport, in Formula One. Yeah, I thought the tribute that Alfa Romeo put on the on the uh, engine cover was uh, was quite funny. Yes, um, agreed. Some, something along the lines of, uh, we'll leave you alone now, Kimi. Um, and uh, I think they had something, well, they had something nice for Antonio Giovinazzi as well. Yeah, it was a bit of um, yeah, some of the some of the racing for... Uh, was pretty poor really wasn't it i mean poor old uh mazapan didn't even make the start he you know and, and then we had the williams uh both williams cars crashing out neither alfa romeo had had a good race because giovinazzi was down in 17th um i don't well, well he... russell didn't crash out his car just his engine gave up that's true yeah he, yeah, he had a he had a dnf through no fault of his own um but yeah, the uh, the Williams Alfa Romeo battle petered out, didn't it? So, but Williams, you know, finished eighth in the constructors, which is uh, definitely a step in the right direction for them. I, I thought it was uh, 
Interesting how despite uh, AlphaTauri having a really strong weekend with Sonoda starring and finishing in fourth place, Alpine managed to pinch uh, P5 in the constructors. So uh, they, they won that personal battle. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was hard for me anyway to, to pay too much attention to anything other than what was going on at the front of that Grand Prix. So I don't really have too many other intelligent insights, to be honest. <laughs> well, how intelligent your insights are are debatable anyway. Questionable so. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's move on to a happier subject, and that is my interview with racing legend Hurley Haywood. We talk a bit about uh, sports car racing mainly and what's to come and what we've seen and all those types of things. But racing 2022 racing season is not that far away at all. The roar before the 24, which is kind of this like annual ceremony that builds up to the 24 hours of Daytona is less than a month away. It's like three weeks away. So we don't have a long time here. So anyway, let me jump to that and hear a bit from Hurley. Hurley Haywood, so good to chat with you again. It's been a super interesting year for motorsport, in addition to just being a super interesting year in general. Um, But what did you think of what turned out to be a very closely run 2021 IMSA season? Well, I thought that IMSA did a really good job. You know, they were very, they had the bubble, the IMSA bubble, and everybody that went into that bubble had been tested. Um, And so, and, and, you know, had at least one or two um, vaccines. So I, I felt, you know, comfortable in that situation. They were very strict. They didn't let anybody in that didn't have the right kind of credentials saying that they were, you know, medically okay to go. And uh, the, the racing turned out to be one of the best in, in many years. And the championships, a lot of the championships went down to the, to the last race. So you couldn't have asked for a better script as far as the racing goes. Uh, I know that a lot of people were kind of, you know, irritated with the uh, with the mask mandates, but you know, you gotta. We all have to work together to put a stop to this thing. And I think IMSA did a really good job, and I think everybody that involved in IMSA did a good job, whether they liked it or not. You know, they just follow the rules. That's right, and it allowed the racing to continue. And yep. that's that's really ultimately the most important thing. And you're right that. For many classes, the racing went down to the final event at Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta. But, you know, for the DPI class, it went down to the last lap of the last race. Really, really something. And, you know, Porsche wasn't competing in DPI, but just as a driver, that had to be fun for you to see. Yeah, I mean, it it sort of sort of brought back memories of what the racing was like back in this in the seventies and eighties, where you know you had a, a bunch of of cars all of equal performance, all racing you know wheel to wheel, and it seems that you know the IMSA guys have learned a lesson that you know if you bang into somebody, you're going to injure your car, and that's going to push you out. And the officials are looking closely at you know driver conduct, and if you are not following the rules, you're going to get pulled in and, and, and disciplined, and that'll take them out of the, the hunt. So I think everybody is doing a good job for a while there. It was kind of, you know, a, a Western flick with everybody, you know, doing what they wanted to do. But in the long run, 
uh, in the long run, it, it, it proved out to the, that they, they listened to the criticism and they obeyed the rules. And that's what you need to have. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Porsche was racing at least somewhat uh, in the GTLM class and also in GTD, which is effectively GT3. And Porsche did end up coming up on top of the GTD class with PAPF Motorsports. Um, what did you think of the GTLM and GTD classes for 2021? The GT Le Mans class was such an expensive operation. They just spent a lot of money, and really there was, from the spectator's view, there was very little difference between a, a Le Mans GT and a Daytona GT. The Daytona GTs really have risen up to the level that not quite the level of a, a Le Mans car but close to it and and looks almost the same so I think in, in Porsche's standpoint they said you know we want to have a, a class where we have one type of car that can be driven by both professionals and by amateurs and so you have the am, the pro and the amateur all racing GTD so I, I think that was a really good move and um you know, I think uh, that th they'll be on a very good footing going into into 22 to repeat the championship. Yeah, and so what you're referring to is the fact that this is the GTLM's last year racing IMSA and that it will be GTD Pro uh, and GTD Am um, in the same car. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's cost-effective, but much more than anything, we now, by that move, we have a class of just, you know, more than a dozen manufacturers and a car that takes very little, little modification to race almost anywhere in the world. So. Yep. I think that was what the goal was to make a car that was interchangeable from Europe to the United States, to China, to Japan, to wherever. And that's something that's good. It opens up the door for, you know, a lot of employment for professional drivers and it gives, you know, you, when you're a racing driver, you learn from your peers and you learn from putting yourself up against the, the real pros. And so I think the, the amateur division will be really good. I mean, you know, let's face it, these cars have got so much driver aids that make you know, traction control, sequential shifting, yeah. all those Any things. Brakes, yeah. Bring, brings the the timeline closer and closer. So the difference between a pro and an amateur now gets, you know, very small. And the only advantages the pros have is their knowledge of traffic management and how they, they pick their windows of opportunity. Um, and the amateur guys will learn that eventually, but that's the only really difference, it's not lab time that's the difference, it's the a, it's a knowledge that's the difference. Yeah, 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 and it's super fascinating uh, to see how that's going to play, how it's going to show itself on the track, especially when you start mixing it in with the prototype classes, and especially when you have some of the prototype classes that are also pro-am, like LMP2 and... Uh, it, it, LMP3. It's it's going to be fascinating racing. It's going to be it's like going to be 
driving down the highway in Los Angeles at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be very interesting that, to see who's going to the beach and who's actually there for the work, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's going to be really – now more than ever is driver discipline and how you manage all that traffic of not big, huge differences in times, but it's enough to make it where you're you're going to be in packs of cars. And that's where the problem starts when you have a bunch of cars all together, all trying to vie for, you know, inches on the racetrack. And it's going to be an interesting dynamic to, to watch. Looking back at 2021, was there something that you saw in PAF that you thought gave them the edge for the season? Or was it simply they had better luck? Or was it just the foundation of the Porsche chassis? What, what do you look at? And to see how PAP was able to uh, win that uh, category. Well, that's easy. I mean, Patrick is a true professional. He's raced for a number of years with, with the Porsche factory. And he's gleaned a lot of information of driving those types of cars. And I think that that's what gave him the edge. He's a smart, he, he's, he's kind of takes the same mindset that I took when I was started, started. And so you might not be the fastest guy in the group, but you got to be the smartest guy in the group and you have to pick your windows of opportunity. And I think that that's what Patrick did. He, he was, he's a smart racer. He's plenty quick, but he's also puts that quickness, um, and in front of that is his knowledge of of what's going on around him. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you're you're pretty excited for 2022. Um, but 2022 is gonna kind of be a weird year because we've got the GTD Pro coming, but we're still running one more year of DPI. When in 2023. We're getting this new LMDH chassis or category, excuse me, that is going to have a way to merge with 24 hours of Le Mans racing. And that's putting a lot of emphasis on the prototype categories and a lot of manufacturers are jumping into that. Do you think that 2022 is not going to get as much attention as it might deserve because there's so much anticipation for 2023? Well, again, 22 will be sort of a learning process for these teams. Um, and I think you're right. I think, you know, everybody's looking forward to 23 when they get these this new class underway. But in the meantime, the, the drivers and the teams have got to, you know, stay polished. You don't want to be sitting on the sidelines. And even sitting on the sidelines for one or two races, you lose a great amount of momentum from – just a learning process on how things operate. So you're going to have a lot of new guys coming in. Uh, you know, Roger Penske's coming in. He, you know, raises the bar wherever he goes. So, you know, then you're going to have Chip Ganassi. I mean, you're, you're going to have a really fantastic field of cars. And uh, it's going to be exciting for fans to watch all that competition and to watch what this new class of cars is, is going to do. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to 23. I'm also looking forward to 22. I think 22 is going to be a good year. Looking looking ahead, seeing what racing we have coming, seeing how 
IMSA and Lamar are starting to work with each other more. Is does this remind you of an era when you were driving seventies, eighties, nineties, or is this in many ways uncharted territory? No, it's been it's been charted before. I remember, you know, when John Bishop started IMSA, the ACO and IMSA were far, far apart, and suddenly we were really drawing big crowds to our races. When Camel GT got us, Camel cigarettes got on board. The thing just ignited, and the ACO looked at that, and they said, "Wow, these these guys must, you know, be onto something." So they allowed a lot of the IMSA cars to go over and race at Le Mans, and that was, you know, the the interest from the European side for the Americans to come over was huge, and so then politics started to play a role, and things got, you know, more difficult to negotiate. And for a long time, there was a big separation between what ACO allowed and what IMSA allowed. And the two of them sort of said, you know, okay, you do your things, we'll do our things. And now they're starting to come back together. And Jim France, I give Jim a lot of the credit for this because he had that, the long vision. He had, when, when the DPI or DP cars were first introduced, you know, everybody shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, my God, what, what are you guys doing? What are you thinking about? But Jim saw the long view of that, and those cars developed and developed into what is now called DPI, which are very sophisticated and fast cars. And so it'll be interesting to see how those cars sort of meld into the new the new formula. I don't think they're immediately going to go away, but I think the racing – is going to be quite quite close between those two classes. Yeah, and to me, it seems like, I think you're absolutely right that Jim France made some very smart decisions. And one of the big things that IMSA, now that uh, Grand Am and um, the ALMS combined several years ago, is they've done a really good job to keep costs down. And I think just looking at just the real world economies being able to produce good racing for a 10th of the price to race IMSA than you would at the world endurance championship, you know, those kinds of ratios alone make the IMSA so much more appetizing to the manufacturers. Yep. I think you're, you're totally right. I mean, you know, cost is a, is a, very important factor of any racing program and you want a car you want as many cars affordable to the largest group of people so you know i'm, I'm looking at the the poster on my wall that is from the amelia island concourse when i was a grand marshal there and it's got a really good it's got you know starting with my 914 going through the 962 eras the, the 936 eras the 935s and ending, you know, with our DPI cars. And so it's it's interesting to see the evolution. The, the evolution has, has been going on forever, for many years. And these cars evolve, rules change, climates change, the way that people accept different formulas change. So I think that IMSA is doing a really good job of metering all that knowledge and coming up with formulas that work for a large portion of of the people that are involved so i like that and final question for you hurley um 
I know that you had a lot of respect for Nick Tandy. Now that Nick Tandy is left to race Chevrolets, are, are you going to join Chevrolet or are you, are you still going to root for Porsche, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, Nick is a good friend, but believe me, I, I'm not going to be rooting for a Corvette. I'm, I'm a, a Porsche guy through and through. So I was disappointed that he went over there, but I think he's finding out really how great Porsche was, their factory efforts and their private efforts. I think, you know, maybe there's a chance they'll come back to Porsche, but who knows? Right, right. I think everybody, I think every, I think everybody at Porsche is, is happy with their lineup. And, um, you know, Patrick long retired this year from pro racing. So there's going to be no, foreseeable Americans on on the Porsche factory roster. I think Patrick made the right move. I think you know he sort of saw the handwriting on the wall and said, okay, now's the time to, to quit. And or not to quit, but just to retire from from the pro side of racing. He'll still race, you know, vintage stuff and if a really good program comes comes along that gets him into a a prototype, he'll he'll probably jump on that. But you know, I told him when he when he first got married i said you know when you when you start having kids it's going to change your whole outlook on what you're doing and sure enough he's got two adorable kids and a wonderful wife and i think that patrick just said you know i want to reduce my risk level uh to something that's acceptable and uh so he he retired from the echelon of of top racing yeah and he did so he he did so after a fantastic nearly two decade long career and just as you said he's still with Porsche still still very active with the brand and still dipping his dipping his toes in a lot of different waters to keep him yep. interested and busy yeah yep, so exactly yeah well hurley it's always great to talk with you and hear your opinions on uh, sports car racing and uh from the Porsche brand's point of view Thank you so very much for your time, and I hope you stay warm in the winter months. I mean, it's a very short off-season we have, uh, just November to January, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right. My pleasure. He's just such a pleasure to talk to. His wealth of knowledge from his decades of racing and being involved in the sport and working for Porsche, is, you know, his, his knowledge base is incredible. So it's always good to hear from him. Absolutely. And now let's move on to an either happier subject, and that is my latest YouTube video. <laughs> this time, I did just a mega video, in, in my mind at least, on the Mercedes-Benz S580 4Matic sedan. This is a new generation S-Class. This car is insane with the amount of gadgets and technologies and different little tricks it has. And the fact that this is a big sedan with 496 horsepower and 516 pound-feet of torque and a better than 10 to 1 weight to power ratio. Oh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it looked like there's a lot of luxury there. I was surprised that it's it's a, it's a pure ICE power unit. So is this going to be the last, do you think, uh, the last hurrah of the internal combustion engine in the S-Class? Well, you could argue that it's not pure ICE. It does have a 48-volt mild hybrid system. It is a starter generator, and it makes 21 horsepower and 184, I believe, pound-feet of torque, but does so at low revs. So it's one of those kinds of systems. And, yeah, I think even though that this is 
technically mild hybrid. It's not pure, pure ICE. Yeah, I think it's very unlikely. Uh, the inertia is all headed towards EV, and you know the the pace is only picking up. So I'd be shocked if there were future versions of that. But that was some of the really clever engineering. This is a big, big sedan with a lot of luxury priorities, and yet its coefficient of drag was only 0.22. That's pretty darn impressive all on its own. So I got a chance to have a play in a EQS uh, a few months back, which obviously is a pure EV, similar sort of size car to, a, to the S-Class. Which would you choose if, if money was no object? Well, if money was no object, I would choose a helicopter. And, <laughs> <laughs> and just helicopter around and then hop in my Porsches and Ferraris when I wanted to go drive. But if money were a bit of an issue, I, uh, you know, that's a tough call. I think given all the circumstances, I'm ready to jump into the EV world. But if you're in a place where it's still difficult to justify a pure EV, whatever your circumstances are, the S-Class makes a very strong case for yourself and a very comfortable, strong case for itself. Yeah, the S-Class has always been popular with dictators around the world, I guess. So sticking with it, I see makes sense <laughs> for them. <laughs> yes, yes. And as you well know, it's very much a dictatorship here at the Fun With Cars podcast. <laughs> so that, that all lines up, doesn't it? Does it but, come with the retractable, you know, fender flag mounts? To the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, that I do not know. I, it's interesting what is and isn't standard on this car. For example, only dual zone climate control is standard on the S-Class. That is an upgrade to get four zone climate control. But what was standard something that's really often charged extra for are metallic paints and sometimes you get charged thousands extra for that that was standard on the s class so it's just you know you never know what is and isn't standard so maybe if you know the right people maybe it's a dealer add-on that you can get a very good price for for the dictator flags (laughs) (laughs) which which was the s class that that uh i think it must have been the mid 90s I, i i forget the the code name for that particular version, where it was so gargantuan, they had to have a telescoping sort of uh, parking aids that came out of the rear fenders. Do you remember what, do you remember the one I talked about? It was particularly <laughs> blocky yeah, looking. Yeah. It wasn't my favorite S-Class. Yeah, sure. yeah. No, I do remember it. I, I also do not remember the name, but as you know about me, I don't remember much of anything. So that, I'm not a good example. But that's, that's what's creative about this one. This one is over 208 inches long. And yet, because of rear axle steering, it was quite maneuverable. And that was an impressive bit of this car. So, Can, can we do the guess the sticker? Oh, yes. That's a great, great thing. It is. I will give you a hint right off the bat. More than 25,000. <laughs> yeah, well, you dropped, uh, you dropped a couple of the option costs during the, uh, the video. So I'm going to say... Uh, for that particular model you were driving, I'm going to say $135,000. Oh, my gosh. How could you be so unfair to Mercedes? That car was only $131,000 as tested, <laughs> sir. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it is a touch over one hundred and fifteen dollars uh, base price. Yeah, it was very, very thorough video. I liked some of the uh, explanation of the... The features like the head-up display and uh, I, I, the the hot pink uh, neon uh, wasn't to my taste, so I was glad when you changed that to a different color uh, and showed <laughs> the feature. 
<laughs> yes, available. yes. Yes, well, it it is a bit long, but uh, on the plus side, uh, we are going to get a little bit of a break ourselves. This is as likely as any the last podcast of the year. We did not quite make it to 50, but it's good for us to take a, a few weeks break ourselves for the holiday. So until 2022 and when you hear from us again, I very much want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, please very much enjoy your happy place. Hey, uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you as well. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.